0: preaching of God's word is in Hebrews 11 and there at verse 13 it comes to us in the midst of this chapter which is showing us various instances of faith so already to this point we've heard of Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and notice now our passage These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. As we consider all who are in this chapter, not only up to this point, but following after, they have this common Reality. They were men and women of faith. Uh, What's needed, of course, is for us to realize that faith is not only that faith unto justification. Saving faith includes that. Saving faith takes hold of Christ offered to them. But saving faith also has respect to all the counsel of God, promises, and commandments. And it is, as it were, sometimes referred to as spiritual sight. So you can see reference here. They saw the promises afar off. The temporal promises regarding Israel, as you see with reference to Jacob and Joseph, but also the spiritual promises that are there held forth as well. The text itself contains an observation of these earlier believers, namely that they died. And this is important for a number of reasons, not least of which is to indicate so clearly and tangibly that they didn't receive the promises held forth to them. This doesn't mean that they weren't believers. It doesn't mean they weren't saved. What it means is, for instance, Abraham, as one example among many, was promised this land of inheritance. Well, he never received the express enjoyment of all of that land in this life. But he saw it afar off and he embraced it and trusted that God would be faithful to provide, as he had, this land of inheritance to his seed. And as elsewhere displayed, this is but appointing to the grand inheritance of all things for those who descend in faith from Abraham to inherit the world and all that it contains. And so they died in faith to testimony of the great gift God gave them. The text also includes several characteristics that were common to their faith. Notice, it includes knowledge. So faith isn't a blind faith. Sometimes people speak of it. We should wipe that from our expression. There's not such a thing in the Bible as blind faith. Faith is full of knowledge. Faith is full of understanding. Not comprehensive understanding, but notice the text It says, they saw them afar off. What did they see? The promises. They didn't say, well, I don't know what's out there, so I'm just going to trust. No, they knew. They understood what God promised. And they said, though I don't experience it yet, yet I'm going to trust God that what He's promised will come to pass. Notice, moreover, faith includes a persuasion. And so it says that they saw them and were persuaded of them. Now, this is important because the notion of persuasion is that they were convinced that these things were true. So, it's not just that they heard and understood and could discern and explain what was promised. It's that they saw and understood, but they also were persuaded that these things convinced that they were true. And notice another characteristic, that they embraced them. It's trust. And so, they were persuaded of them and embraced them. Now, that word embrace is a very physical word. We know what it is to embrace another person, to embrace them with a hug, or to shake their hand and to take something in our hand. But this is talking about a spiritual exercise of the soul, whereby our souls embrace these promises. And this is what's here before us, which then leads to a confession. And notice what the confession is. That they were strangers and pilgrims... On the earth. In other words, the particular aspect of the promises held forth to them is that of the promised land and all that it contains in it, not just the physical tract of land, but that God had something more for them than what this world could offer. In other words, they were in effect saying, This world and all that it is is not our ultimate resting place. So their faith didn't just look to that land that they could see and many of them wandered through or uh, lived in to some extent or another, but it looked beyond that land unto the heavenly Mount Zion. And they looked to the hope of Christ Jesus. And so these are some characteristics. But what we see here is that true faith enables one to live for that which is promised, though it is unseen. They're able to live for the unseen world, persuaded that God is faithful, who has promised. And brethren, this of course is full of instruction and guidance to us today. Because we can look all over the place and see things that are impressive. We can go to various neighborhoods not far from here and look at houses and land and say, that would be something I would want. And people make plans and say, you know, I'm going to make it so that this place would be my dream House. We're not saying there's anything wrong with planning or you know, being purposed in what we're establishing as our home and other things of that sort, apart from noting that the believer does not set their soul's hope upon those things. The believer is not looking upon this land or that house or this inheritance in this world as if that's what I'm living for. Notice, among other examples, you have this sort of thing Expressed when it is that um, Abraham, verse eight, by faith, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after re- were, which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing whither he went. He went not knowing where he was going, but he was trusting God and he was relying upon Him who would indeed provide for him all things. And what was it? Verse ten. He looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He wasn't looking. Abraham was never looking for this tract of land, which would then be his. That was but a testimony, in some sense a down payment, for the grand inheritance that is the common inheritance of all believers, that we should inherit heaven and earth. And so they're wanting to be buried there, was but one tangible expression of saying, this promise is what I embrace by faith. It's a good example of what it means to live in light of the promised world to come. But brethren, let's look at faith this afternoon and living by it by first considering what faith perceives, secondly, how faith engages, and thirdly, what faith Produces So firstly then, what faith perceives? Faith, of course, as we're told, is that by which we trust God. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It is a trusting of God who promises things that aren't seen for us. So it includes knowledge, as we've seen. Faith isn't blind, it's not stupid, it's not ignorant, it is full of knowledge. Now there's a limit to it, we can't explain everything. Just as Abraham was told to go, but he didn't know exactly where he was going. But he did know he was told to go and God would lead him. And so he was following him. Well, faith of course includes knowledge. But notice particularly, both in this chapter and elsewhere, that faith particularly perceives the things promised by God. So we think about faith. We think about that exercise of our soul's trust upon what God has promised to do or give or be. So any promise God gives is, as it were, that which faith then understands and perceives. Now, this is trying because oftentimes God promises things ...that are contrary to what we're experiencing. So we have in the scripture, of course, a number of examples of that. You have it with barren women. You have it with uh, men who are weak. Here's David, of course, the youngest of the sons of Jesse. And he's going to be king. And he looks at himself and says, what am I? These are common experiences toward those who are promised. And yet, faith is given that promise... And basically what's being tested is this. Do you trust more what is seen and what makes sense to you, or do you trust Him who is unseen and who is making promise to you? So faith perceives the things that God promises. Notice, just as an aside, the role of promises for our living. You can see this in 2 Peter and Chapter 1. Second Peter and chapter one. The, the promises of God are of, are of immense importance when we see, for instance, that God has given unto us verse four exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature. It is a question worthy of Revisiting again and again what promises of God do I know if you were challenged to make a list of God's promises how many could you list off in quick succession and not just vague sort of notions of well I know there's something about that that can be helpful and the Lord uses that summaries of his promises of course but how many explicit promises could you list off right now Because to the extent that you are ignorant of the promises is the measurement of how short-sighted your faith will necessarily be. Because faith looks at what God promises. It's His promises which assure us of heaven to come. It's His promises which gather us under Christ to believe upon Him. It's His promises when once gathered under Christ that He uses to sanctify us more and more. His promises are imperative to be understood, if ever our faith should be sound and full of clarity, because faith perceives the things which God promises." So it's good and right, it's necessary even, for us to memorize the Ten Commandments, or perhaps we meditate or memorize the Sermon on the Mount, or the Lord's Prayer particularly. And these are helpful aspects in which some promises are found. But it's also good for us to spend time searching out and corralling and meditating and memorizing and thinking upon the promises of God. Because that's what faith looks to. That's what faith perceives. Notice as well the nature of a promise is that it's something that isn't yet given. So promise is holding forth something that's not yet yours. So we think in common terms, we might say to someone, you know, I promise I'll do that in the future. I'll do that tomorrow. Or when are we going to do it? Well, I'll promise I'll do it later. So it's something, it's a word that is holding forth and serving as a bridge, as it were, to the future that we trust. And depending on the person's character, we either trust it or we don't. But with God, of course, He gives us a promise that then is bridging us in expectation to the future. And this is what faith perceives. Now, this, of course, is opposed by the temporal things of this life. We see that in a number of places here. Think of Israel, which was promised to be delivered, of Egypt, and yet so soon as the deliverance was drawing near and God was giving promise to Israel, what happened but the increase and the multiplying of affliction? So Pharaoh turns up the heat and his servants inflict greater pain and suffering upon the Jews in Egypt when the promise of deliverance was coming. Isn't that impressive that when the promise is nearing, affliction increases? What's the point of the affliction from Satan's side? It's to breed unbelief, disbelief, and thus complaint, groaning, murmuring, And all sorts of discontent. But on God's side, we can say it this way He's trying us, He's testing us. Will you trust me for what I've promised? Think of Noah, mentioned here in verse 7 By faith, Noah being warned of God of things not seen as yet. Warned of God of things not seen as yet. Noah, this is what you're gonna do. You're gonna build this massive ark. And you're gonna build it because I'm going to send such torrential downpour upon the earth. I'm gonna open the fountains from the earth beneath. The heavens above are going to pour forth such rain that the world has never seen. And the whole earth is gonna be flooded and destroyed. And I'm going to preserve not only you and your home, but various creatures of the earth by means of this ark. He never saw it. He didn't come to God and say, you know, this doesn't make sense. It's not working out. The trial was in his moment through the fact that there these things that were foretold had never happened before. And if he had lived by reason, saying, well, I've not seen it, therefore I'm not going to do it until I see it, well, Noah would have been destroyed with the flood as well. So there are many ways that promises can be opposed by temporal things. And yet, obviously, you and I know this by experience as well. Every unbelieving murmur against God is because our souls were over-impressed by the pain of what was felt and under-impressed by the promise that God has given. Every time we've murmured, every time we've complained, It's because we, in effect, are saying, what I see and experience in this life is more powerful, more certain than what God has promised to give and be to me, even in my sorrow. See, there are myriad ways that the things which are promised of God may be tested and tried, but the main ways those come to us are by the things which are seen. So notice again, if you look at our text, It speaks of the promises, and having seen them afar off. The promises were far off in the distance. What was near, of course, were the many trials and hardships. But faith, of course, perceives the promise. This is the fundamental point. Faith looks at the promise and says, Whatever else happens, I trust him. Think of Job's magnificent claim and expression of faith. Though He slay me, yet will I trust Him. Why is that? Is that because Job was foolish? Is that because Job was just, you know, throwing off all caution? No. It's because he knew that God has promised good to those who trust Him. And so even if it were God who were coming against me with a sword withdrawn, yet I would be willing to be slain by Him because I know He is faithful and good. Or think, for instance, of Abram. Abraham, when he's given a child of promise. And this child of promise is the seed through which the descendant should come that delivers Israel. And now God tells him, kill him, sacrifice him, offer him up unto me. And what did Abraham do? He brought his son to be offered unto the Lord, trusting That God would either provide a substitute or that God would raise up Isaac from the dead. Why would he have that trust? But because in spite of what he was seeing and the current circumstances of his experience, he knew what God had promised is true and faithful. Faith perceives the promise of God. You can perhaps switch uh, the analogy. Faith hears the promise of God. Right now we have the sound in the background. It's easy for us to be distracted by that kind of thing and say, well, how are we going to focus? And yet, with acute discipline, we can make ourselves pay attention to certain things. Well, in many ways, the afflictions of the life are like the volume of distraction being turned up. But it doesn't just have to be affliction. It can be the pleasures of life turn up the volume. So notice, for instance, in verse 24, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That wasn't because there was any affliction in that. It's because there was massive pleasure in that. And yet to have been called the son of Pharaoh's daughter would have meant that he forsook the covenant people of God and the promises that were held forth there. So here's the point. It's not just our afflictions that oppose the promise of God. It's also our pleasures which oppose the promise of God. Anything that is competing with our attention from the promises of God stands as an opponent to our enjoyment of those promises. And so faith perceives the promise. The volume gets turned up through pain, and yet the ear tunes in to the promise that's quiet. The volume get turns, gets turned up through pleasure. Look at the money, look at the popularity, look at the uh, uh, enjoyment. And yet the ear of faith tunes into the voice of God and His promises. But brethren, of course, before we pass on to how faith so engages, this is of great use to us today. Because we're often going back and forth between seasons of great pleasure in this world and seasons of great pain. And sometimes we might hover in one of those areas more than the other. But both of those, we have to see, are actually opponents to our faith trusting in God. Now, let's not overstate this. It's not that the good things of God, the pleasures, shouldn't be received with gratitude. But that's the point. They should be received from God with gratitude. You see, when faith is receiving pleasant things in this life, Faith is still keeping its eye on the Lord. And likewise, when affliction comes to us, it's not that we deny it and say it's not bad, it's not difficult. No. We are driven to God in the affliction to say, I need you. Faith, whether with pain or with pleasure, is driven to the promise of God. So if we're going to overcome the world, here's the point. We need to know the promises and by God's grace be driven to those promises, both in seasons of prosperity and in seasons of pain. Well, secondly, how is it that faith so engages? So it perceives the promise of God, promises of God. How is it that it engages with those promises? Well, simply put, it trusts those promises promises. Notice the language again. There is the embrace of them. To embrace something, in some sense, is so to close the gap between two things that the difference is nearly impossible to make. So, in other words, when a brother and sister come, not having seen one another, and they give one another a hug, there's no space between them. They've closed the gap and they're embraced with one another. And when a Mother or father, their children have been out for a while. They come and they embrace their children. They're bringing them close to them. Well, that's an analogy of what's going on spiritually with faith. The promise, which is far off, is being drawn near and trusted in as to say, this is what I'm living by. This is the message that is guiding me this moment. So, for instance, think of this just as one example. The promise of the last day has several things intervening between now and it. There's, at the very least, the conversion of the Jews, in large measure, and the overthrow of the Roman Antichrist. Those two things must take place before Christ returns. Now that could happen very quickly, but if it doesn't happen for another hundred years, we're distant from that. And yet here's the point, what does faith do? It does say, well, it's far off, so we'll just sort of live as if it's not that close and important, no. Faith, as it were, reaches and extends its hand through time to lay hold of that promise and live in light of the last day now. We're living in light of the promise now. So, one great antidote to temptation, as Christ will say, and we'll see this in Luke 21, that we're to watch and pray. We're now to be watching, we're now to be praying not in the dispensational way of thinking, well, maybe it's happening today or so on. We're not dispensing with those things which God's Word has given as things that must take place first, but we are, as it were, taking the light of the last day and bringing it near to us to live now in light of it. Or, for instance, we take now that distant time when Christ will stand and look us in the eye. Can you imagine that for a moment? that there's a day coming when your eyes will look eye-to-eye with Christ. And He's either going to say to you, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Or He's going to say to you, Depart from me, for I never knew you. Both of those messages are messages that should challenge us today, because that's perhaps years down the road. And yet, it's going to be our real experience. I have no doubt, but that you'll remember this sermon on that day. That day will come when you look at Christ and hear from Christ either well done or depart. Now, one benefit of faith is it doesn't say, well, that's so far down the road that I, you know, what's the purpose of thinking about that? No, faith reaches through because the promise is near and brings it near to us and lives in light of that now. And think of what a great help that is against temptation. Because temptation says, live for your pleasure now. And oh, isn't that close? You know, I'm in my youth... I'm in this time of carefree, I'm young adult, and I've got all this life ahead of me, so I'll live as I want, and if ever I'm going to live for, you know, passing pleasures, now is the time. But faith for a young person brings that near and says, Why would I be such a fool? Why would I live as the careless ones of this age, when I know that God is true, and thus faith takes hold of that and brings it near? Personally, of course, faith draws near to Christ and embraces Him, and lives by Him. So think of what Christ says, If any man would be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and what? Follow me. Faith is a regular eye upon Christ, by His word, and is following Christ. What does that mean? It's embracing Christ's guidance, His promises, His commands, and it's bringing it near to guide us step by step. And so we think of the Christian walk. And the Christian walk is following Christ. Believing His promises that those who forsake, even father, you know, wife, sister, mother, etc., shall indeed inherit in this life even many more, and in the life to come, in glory, all of those things. And so it says it's worth it. It's worth me following Christ step by step today. Because whatever I suffer in this life, If my spouse should leave me, if my parents should leave me, if my children should leave me. Yet Christ has promised, and I believe that promise, and so I'll follow after him now. See, faith is engaging with trust. Notice a similar expression in Romans and chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, and at verse 24. Someone says, Well, look what you get for following Christ. You get pain, and heartache, and misery. You lose out on riches, and pleasure, and so on. And first we say, well, that may not be the case. But even if that is the case, here's our answer. Verse 24 of Romans 8, We are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, Then do we, with patience, wait for it. Hope and faith are intimately related. There is distinction, but they are nonetheless intimately related. They both have their looking upon something that is not yet fully given over. And so the world ridicules Christians in many seasons and says, Look what you're doing. You're not getting anything for it. Your life's not improving. Your finances are improving. Your health's not improving. Your relationships are breaking apart. All sorts of things are falling apart. What's the point? Well, we pause and say, well, maybe I need to assess myself and examine, am I following the Lord? But if I am following the Lord, here's my answer. I'm not living for this life. My orientation is not for my bank account. It's not even for my health. It's not even for my family. Now, let's be clear. The Christian will often experience encouragements in their bank account, in their health, and in their family, but not always. And many times, those things will be attacked. And as we saw, those are afflictions that come and they test us. Which are you going to live by? Are you going to live by what's seen? Or are you going to live by what's not seen? Well, again, it goes back to the promise. What does the promise hold forth? And what hope does, related to faith, is that it holds out expectation for what's coming. So there's the mockery that comes up in many generations and says, Where is the sign of His coming? Since the creation of the world, the world continues as it has since the first. And notice Peter says, listen, of this they're willingly ignorant. Because they ignore the flood, they ignore Noah, they ignore all those things. But they're also ignorant of this. Faithful is God who's promised. Christ has already proved that He is true and faithful. And so if He said, I'm going to come back, though there are years that pass through, though there are seasons where the world casts off religion, casts off Christ, yet don't worry, I'm coming back. The Christian says, hey, I don't see it yet and I can go to graveyards, and I can see tombstones where there are names of Christians who died in the 1800s, 1700s, and earlier, and their bones have rotted. I see that. But I know this, that God whose promise is promises faithful, and Christ who died and rose again is going to come again. What's the point? Again, faith engages by trusting. It trusts God. Now, if that's the case, we have to ask this question. Is God worthy of your trust? That's rarely the explicit question in your doubt and trial. But it's often what's behind your doubts in your trial. Is God worthy of your trust when you're looking at a great illness, or you're looking at the breakdown of a relationship, or you're looking at the death of a loved one, or you're looking at... Um, matters facing the church that are painful and arduous is god worthy of your trust well this is one of the most simple questions to answer because we can step back and say well what do we know of god we know that he's all-powerful so there's nothing that can keep him from fulfilling his will we know that He's true, and there's no lie in Him. There's not even a shadow of variation, variance turning in Him. He can't lie. He can't deceive. So He's worthy of our trust in what He's promised is true. So He's both the one who tells truth, promises truth, and is able to perform what He promises. So with that simple you know, consideration, we're able to say, of course God is worthy of our faith. But then it gets challenged further. Why is it then that He doesn't give unto you everything right now? Well, you see, that question actually ignores something. God never promised that He would give us all those good things right now. In fact, His word has, as it were, gone out of the way to say, you'll encounter grief in this life. So it's Christ who says, if you're going to be my disciple, consider and count the cost. He doesn't say, hey, come on board, we'll just sort of figure this out as it goes on. He doesn't say, if you follow me, everything's going to be easy. He's saying, listen, for, for my sake, you're going to be hated of men. For my sake, people are going to turn against you. For my sake, people are going to call you names that are uh, inappropriate. They're going to be opposed to you. For my sake, I'm going to separate households. For my sake, I'm going to separate friendships. These things will happen. None of that should be a surprise because fundamentally what's happening is in our following after Christ, we're following Him whom the world in its unbelief despises. And so when that trial comes and we say, well, why isn't it easy? Why isn't it easy? We should start with, where did God promise that it would be easy in that way? He tells us that there is a narrow way, a straight way, and few there are that find it. He tells us that there are many afflictions for the godly. He tells us all of those things. But what he also tells us is that the sufferings of this life are not able to be compared with the glory that is to come. If you want the perfect example, notice... Our Lord Jesus Christ Himself in the book of Hebrews. What is it that Christ endured? Notice, though for us Christ is the object of faith unto our salvation, Christ was also in His incarnation a man of faith. He was one who indeed continued and suffered much. We see, for instance, In verse 15 of Hebrews 4, we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Christ endured every type of trial, heartache, pain, and sorrow. He endured. And then we're told more in Hebrews chapter 12. Notice in verse 2, We look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. What's the point? Our King endured grief, and yet He did so, by faith he was given a promise this is open for us in John 17 the father promises the son a people that should be redeemed and saved and so on promises glory in his incarnate state and all of these things and yet there is suffering that must be endured and he does so feeling the fullness of the pain not denying the pain and yet despising the shame of the cross did so because of the joy that was set before him. What's the point? He saw the promise afar off. He embraced it and brought it near, which then enabled him to endure the suffering of the child. This is what faith does. It embraces by faith, trusting, and this then enables us to endure the temporal challenges. Notice in Hebrews 11 and verse 25 again, Moses chose there was a conscious deliberation and then a choice he chose to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season why did he do that or was it because he liked pain we're told exactly why it says he esteemed he counted he reckoned the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Where was Moses looking? He wasn't looking at the here and now. He was looking at the hereafter. That's what faith does. It looks away from the here and now to the hereafter. Well, then what does faith produce? faith produces firstly a true assessment of this life you see that throughout Hebrews 11 these people summarized here who died in faith having received the promises but not having received the promises but having seen them afar off or persuaded of them etc one thing it taught them what faith produced in them was a right assessment of this life versus the life to come Was the world has it entirely reversed. The world has this life as the best, and the life to come is maybe a continuation of the best things of this life. But the Christian by faith says this life in its best can't be compared to the glory of what is coming. That then enables one, man, woman, boy, girl who has faith, to follow after the Lord, even in the most difficult hardships that can be brought to bear notice some of them verse 34 some quench the fire the violence of fire etc but notice as well it says that others verse 36 had trial of mockings and scourgings bonds and imprisonment stones on asunder were tempted slain with the sword etc why would they do that it's because They had a right assessment of this world. What are some ways that that's challenged today? Well, if you're one who's prone to prioritizing human relationships, good human relationships, marriage, children, family, friends, etc., if you make those the measure of God's goodness, well, then when they would compromise or lead you to compromise, you'll be willing to cast off the Lord's Word at that moment. But if instead you say, listen, family is good, it's a provision of the Lord. Marriage is good, it's a provision of the Lord. But it's not the Lord. The Lord is the Lord. His word is preeminent. Then it will bring us at times into conflict with a spouse, with a child, with a parent. If the Lord's merciful and spares us from that, He may bring us into different conflicts with friends at work, or friends in our neighborhood, friends of youth, etc. But the point is this. Faith perceives rightly the assessment of this life that says, though God gives good things in this life, this life is not the measure of ultimate meaning. Think of the rich man in Christ's parable parable who looks at all of his provision and builds this storehouse and says, "Soul, take thy rest, right. Eat and drink and be merry there's store, uh, there's there's good stored up for many years to come, and at that evening we're told that God sent word to him, "Thou fool, this day, this evening, thy soul is required of thee." Think of what Christ says: One thing is needful. That one thing's not marriage. That one thing's not education. That one thing's not children. That one thing's not family. It's not friends, it's not finances it's not any other tangible thing in this world the one thing that is needful is the Lord Jesus Christ and that one thing needful is only known by faith, well faith produces a right valuing of these things, you know there are certain things of worth or value relatively speaking that can be judged by men, and novices don't know how to judge it so they look at something that appears, maybe that's useful, maybe that's uh, rich and, and, and worthwhile. And then they find out they've been duped. But an expert knows the marks of what to, to say. That's a mark of something being worth much. Someone who's familiar with cars knows what, if they're familiar with classic cars, they know how to take the numbers of an engine block and, you know, are the, are the numbers measuring up. Are these from the same uh, uh, build and so on? And if it is, it's of greater value than some shiny component that men might add on to classic cars. Why is that? They know what marks out value. The same is true in other collectible things, in uh, valuable things as well. There are experts who know the marks of value. Faith knows the marks of value. Faith knows it because it's the Word of God that tells us and shows us the marks of value. It's not what the world tells us. So faith helps us rightly assess the things of the life. Related to that, faith helps us rightly assess the value of the world to come. I've shared before, perhaps you've read as well, in various seasons of persecution, things nearly unspeakable have occurred. If you read, for instance, The Voice of the Martyrs, the author of that work, who himself suffered, will say that even the most harrowing and moving of his stories is far less than the stories he could share, and that even in his later years, Richard Wormbrand was haunted by nightmares in recalling what he witnessed happen to Christians in persecuted days. Well, this is true in any season of persecution. And yet what's astounding is he so clearly testifies, both of himself and other Christians, that they were glad to suffer for Christ because they perceived the world to come of far greater value than anything they could gain by relenting and compromising His Word. One most notable story is of course that where a father and son are imprisoned for Christ. And the father is witness to his sons being beaten by the guards. And the guard looking the father in the eye and saying, you can cause this to stop. If you recant and say that Christ is not your Savior, and so on, then your son will not be beaten. Now, who among us can actually imagine that scene? Our son being pummeled by the hands of wicked men, and in our ability to relent and recant, our son's life would be spared. And yet it's the Son who says to the Father, O Father, "...do you do not dare to recant Christ, for I would rather die than to live and know my Father rejected Christ." There's faith. The Son had faith. Christ is sufficient. Christ is preeminent. Christ is all. Even the Son would rather endure beating than to know that His Father had rejected Christ." because he had faith that perceived the value of the world to come. You look at the early Christian martyrs, whose blood was spilled on the grounds of all manner of Colosseums and so on. And yet, mothers and children and fathers together collectively, unitedly saying, We know that this is not the end. And though our bodies are ravaged by the beasts, Yet our very bodies will be raised up in glory. Two English martyrs under the wicked reign of Queen Mary were being brought to the stake, and there was the testimony of one to the other play the man, for we shall inherit a more glorious resurrection because of the flames that will be brought against our body. What were they eyeing? They were eyeing the resurrection. They have their faith set upon the world to come. Brethren, as we close, here's the point. Our world surrounds us with the world itself as the primary focus. The world is always parading itself, even in Christian circles. And so the world becomes the measure of our great desire. You know, you want better relationships, you want more finances, you want more cars, you want a vacation house, you want this, that, and the other, and you can have it. And yet, so often, there is little spoken of regarding the life to come. And so who's the foolish one? The one who, you know, gives all to Christ, their time, their service, their labor, or who is quite wise and uh, uh, thoughtful in all of their ways and laying up store for themselves in all manner of ways. You see, what's the point? The point is in this life, brothers and sisters, we're to live with our eye on the things to come. Yes, wisely, stewarding what God gives us, but stewarding it for God. All that we have is to be stewarded for God. Well, if we do that we won't have our roots sinking here. Now notice again as we close the passage. What did faith lead these who died in faith to confess? That they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Does your life testify of that? Does your life make others say, you know, they live? as if this world and all that it offers is not their home. They live as if what the world could provide is not what they're living for. The way they handle their finances, the way they handle their time, the way they manage their family, the things that they're doing in education and other such things, it's as if, it's as if they aren't living for this world. Well, that's exactly what the Christian is supposed to be doing is to be ordering everything in light of the life to come, to give, to serve, to deny oneself in order to love and honor and live by faith in God. Brethren, there's much, of course, that shall be sacrificed then if you live by faith. And yet, remember this, Nothing you sacrifice in faith will be above what you gain in glory. Your greatest loss in this life will not be able to be compared with the smallest gain that is yours in glory. And you see, it's when we understand that and faith draws that near to us that then with great simplicity we order our lives to follow christ he who saved us forgiving us washing us of our sins by his blood is now embraced brought near that we may follow him all of our days would you stand with me then